0: Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why? We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee.
1: Hello and welcome to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, it has been absolutely ages uh, since I uploaded a show. That's partly because I've been working on the Virgin podcast. But we are back this week with a fantastic interview. Now, because of the fact that I upload these shows irregularly, the best way to be notified uh, when I do upload a show is either to subscribe to the show via iTunes and then when I do upload a show your uh, podcast app on your phone will update or it is to go to frisbeesbullsandbears.com and and where it says subscribe via email on the right hand side of your screen if you enter your email address into there you will receive an email every time I upload a new show which hopefully in the uh, coming few weeks will be reasonably frequently So to the guest of today's programme, who is sitting right opposite me, he is Tim Price, one of my colleagues at Money Week magazine. And those of you that that don't know Tim, he has a a pretty illustrious career behind him. He uh, went to Oxford University, he's worked in the capital markets for 25 years, and he's uh, been shortlisted for... Um, fund manager of the year. Is that right? Fund manager of the year a couple of times, uh, a a, a couple or three times, and actually won it in 2005. Um, And he now manages the VT price value portfolio. And he's written a new book called Investing Through the Looking Glass, and Tim is a is a I think I'm right in saying he's a late convert to the kind of Austrian school of economics way of thinking. But he is, despite being a late convert, he is one of the most passionate advocates of some of the beliefs of that school. And that, so that gives you a, a brief idea of of what Tim's about. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, let's start with investing through the looking glass. I, I suppose the, the, the good way to start is always why did you write
2: the book? So, fair enough question. Um, I've been working for for 25 years in um, the securities markets and the capital markets in London. Um, Half of that time I spent as a bond salesman. So, I was selling um, fixed income product, government, corporate debt type stuff to a variety of institutions. And then for the last 15 or so years, I've been working in private client asset management. And the, I suppose, Damascene conversion moment for me was... September 2008, so the failure of Lehman Brothers and all of the attendant issues around that. Um, 2008, for anyone that that isn't aware, I suspect all of your listeners will be aware, but 2008 was effectively the worst financial market environment in living memory. So you'd have to go back to 1929 and the 1930s to come anywhere close to the impact of particularly the potential impact of what happened in 2008 and the credit crisis, the global financial crisis. And so the reason for the book for me was quite straightforwardly. A, someone at Harriman House approached me and said, would I like to write a book? And I thought about it for about a millisecond and said yes. But B, being more, more serious, uh, my response was, how on earth did we get into this unbelievable mess? So effectively, the the, the, the book for me is... a. Largely cathartic exercise.
1: Um, yes. So, I'm sorry about that. We were rudely interrupted by the manager of this esteemed hotel in which we are sitting. Anyway, back to you, Tim. You, uh, you approached my Harriman house. You jumped at the chance. You
2: jumped at the chance to write it. And, and more, more seriously, um, 2008 was just a disaster. And the, the biggest disaster that anyone has ever experienced in financial markets in living memory. So the book for me was a largely cathartic experience of of trying to answer the question, how on earth did we get into this mess? And that the, the, the outcome of that, of me trying to wrestle with, with that question is, is the book. So how did we get into this mess? Um, have you got a spare couple of days? Uh, no, I've got, to, <laughs> I've, well, according to the manager of
1: the hotel. I've 29 got... minutes. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I, you can get a, a cursory um, conclusion just through looking at the chapter headings. So I've traced this back to, in no particular order, the nature of banking, the nature of central banking, the nature of fund management, uh, the workings of the bond and the stock market, and the nature of financial media. So in other words, everybody did it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and different people have different idea as, uh, ideas as to which is the bigger culprit. If you spoke to me, I'd go, it's fractional reserve banking. Yeah, I mean, I, was, it's fiat I, money. I think there's,
2: there's clearly a role, there's clearly fingers to be pointed at the fractional reserve banking system. But I'd go even deeper than that. Um, I think I missed out. There's a chapter also on e- economics, economists and financial theorists. That is perhaps also a sort of ground zero. But in terms of re- really identifying the culprits, I think most objective observers would struggle um, to refute the idea that this is now a gigantic central bank disaster in the making.
1: Yeah, the the, 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 the central bank role... It's always been there, you know, from Alan Greenspan allowing well, too much. Well, in, in, in the
2: U.S., it goes back to the creation of the Fed itself in 1913. In the context of the UK, I suppose you can take it back to 1694, which when the Bank of England was established. But more, more realistically, I, I, and it, again, it's, it's, it's something I address fairly early on. I think that the game-changing event was the early 1970s when Nixon took the dollar off gold, and in the process of doing that, effectively ushered in a 40-year experiment in unbacked money, which we're now living through, I suspect, the terminal phases of that experiment.
1: The the role of the central banker grew post-2008, though, didn't it?
2: It did, and... Uh, so because I'm not... the
1: more they do, the more power they have. For sure. of easing and zero and interest rates... And I
2: have some sympathy because, you know, it, it, although your listeners won't be able to see this, I'm now rolling uh, my, my finger and my thumb together, so I'm, I'm playing the world's smallest violin just on behalf of the world's central banks... They've been given, whether, whether this is policy drift or whether, it's, or whether it's a power grab is debatable. So the more charitable were to say, the central bank stepped in because there was a political vacuum. Politicians were asleep at the wheel. They basically, you know, when, when the proverbial hit the fan, they were basically not on the case. So the central bank stepped in to do what, whatever they thought they could do to try and reflate the economy. The bizarre thing about QE, the whole quantitative easing monetary stimulus experiment, is it hasn't worked. End of story.
1: Well, it's propped up asset prices.
2: It's propped up asset prices, but again, what was the objective of QE? So <clears throat> I, I speak with a sort of fixed income background. So my bias, if you like, my, what I consider my home turf is, is, is the credit markets. And I would suggest... the the, the overriding problem we're all faced with as investors um, derives back to the fact that there is too much debt in the world there is too much debt clogging up the economy uh, and the financial system if you accept that thesis uh, so to put the figures into context since 2008 McKinsey point out that uh, that there was a crisis of too much debt and and, and over leverage since 2008 the system has added another 60 trillion dollars worth of debt So, if the problem was too much debt before, the problem has not gone away. If you accept that problem, namely debt, there are only three, there are three and only three ways of attempting to resolve it. One way is that, as government, you engineer enough economic growth to to enable that debt to be serviced. I would suggest, humbly suggest, that in Europe, the European Union is already in a depression. Discuss. The second option is that you have, uh, let's call it politely, uh, a debt jubilee. Or less politely there's mass default that's easy to say but it's not so easy to deliver because let's say you Dominic are the debt holder I Tim am the debt issuer I'm the government if I default on my debt I default on my liability but my liability is your asset so in defaulting I bankrupt you so I would also bankrupt the global banking and pension industry so option two is not really on the table either hopefully so what does that leave us Option number three. What's in box number three is what's been the, the preferred solution for all governments throughout all recorded history of dealing with too much debt, and it's called inflation.
1: Yeah. Well, I would argue that they're doing a bit of everything. You know, we have we have a little bit of economic growth. We have a, uh, quite a lot of money printing. Uh, we have a little bit of inflation. I mean, obviously, it depends what your definition is. Yeah,
2: so in, in financial asset terms, we've clearly had inflation. But the level of goods and services, it's been more um, abundant.
1: There's also been quite a lot of debt monetization gone on. I mean, in the case of the UK now, 25% of government debt is was just printed, has been printed by the Bank of England. So that's kind of default by the back door.
2: Well, I mean, in, in, in a sense, inflation is default. It's just a sort of more polite, polite way yeah. of... Uh, the polite way of delivering the bad news, but for me, the bottom line is the system, the, the system is untenably dangerous now, and you know it, it, it's in a sense quite timely that we're having this conversation now because last week a trillion dollars more than a trillion dollars worth of debt value mysteriously evaporated now How is that year well year well because of falling prices uh, in the across government, in the bond, market. government bond markets internationally. Now, some with people with the Trump say, election, I should yeah, say, some people so. will, will say, okay, well, it's clearly Donald Trump's fault, despite the fact that the guy isn't even in office yet. I think, to be fair, that's a, a function of the fact that human beings have a love of narrative, so we love an easy story, yeah, uh, we love a, li- a nice and easy story. The reality is that bond yields throughout the world have been actually ba- backing up now since the summer. They so, have, and so I've been <laughs> short. <laughs> the interest rate cycle has already arguably started a turn, but. The the Trump victory and the implications for stimulus, for infrastructure spending, for tax cuts, for probably a five trillion increase in the U.S. national debt, the implications of of Trump being in office as opposed to Hillary Clinton, uh, that basically... Ignited the dry tinder that's been growing in the bond market for years. Sure, that victory speech sounded like Roosevelt's New Deal, didn't it? It it was very. Yeah, promise? Yeah, promise. He's right winger. It was very un-Trump like, but very conciliatory. So I think that probably surprised quite a few people who were expecting him to, you know, to launch some kind of jihad against, you know, all, all of the the. The, the dark forces that had been sort of whacking throughout the course of his campaign. But immediately you get the sense that you know, a lot of this was clearly for show, that you know, outrageous statements were made, mostly by him during the course of the campaign, and he's rowing back on nearly all of them. So it's probably not, it's probably not the end of the world as we know it, which the financial media have been reporting, certainly the left-wing media, but uh, something has clearly changed. And what I find fascinating about the current environment is that firstly Brexit happened, and Brexit was the perhaps the single finest observation, articulation of groupthink you'll ever see in your life. And then if Brexit wasn't enough, how do you like them apples, and on comes Trump. So we've had two extinction-level events triggered by groupthink. It's, it, for any fan of human nature, this is just a, a wondrous time to be alive.
1: Yeah, my dad said to me he voted to remain... But he wanted leave to happen because it would be more fun.
2: For <laughs> <laughs> fair dues. <laughs>
1: um, so we've—I d- think we've done two—two two of the problems: banks and central banks. And then you, we touched on the third when we talked about groupthink. So let's do economists and financial. Theorists. Okay, so
2: um, I That's didn't read—I didn't read economics and at university. I read English instead. And so clearly, that gives me uh, makes me uniquely qualified to opine about global capital market flows. But in my defence, the the thing that I the the penny that slowly started to, to drop during the course of my career is that most conventional economics is complete bollocks. So the there's a there's a great book that I came across called The Origin of Wealth by Eric D. Beinhocker of the Leicestershire Beinhockers. (laughs) <laughs> and and in Do you know Frisbee is the
1: name from Leicestershire, <laughs> by
2: the way, as well? Okay, well, you know, you're in good company. Um, and in that, and that's a potted history, effectively, of economics. And one of the, the little stories that comes out there, and uh, it wasn't lost on me when I was reading it about probably 10, 15 years ago, was um, Leon Walras. So here, here's an example. Leon Walras was a Frenchman. Okay, that's already bad enough in my book, but let's go on. He was a Frenchman who had singularly failed at every single thing he, he turned his hand to. Walras Senior takes Walras Junior for a, a walk one summer night and says, my son, I think you should try your hand at you know, nailing this, this new art of, of economics. And so Walras Junior then proceeds to do this and basically proceeds to nick a load of ideas from physics and then misapply them in the course of this new so-called science called economics. The problem being is it doesn't work. That you know the physical world, the science, the world of proper science. There are principles; they're tested principles. They can be falsified. And in other words, if you have a theory, it's a testable theory. This is all kind of Karl Popper type stuff. The problem with economics, particularly you know Keynesian or neo-Keynesian uh, economics, is that there is no theory. If there is a theory, the theory can't be tested. If the theory is then espoused and practiced in, in for example QE, it doesn't work. So it's like the line from sort of Blackadder. It was this brilliant plan, but the trouble was it was all bollocks. So let's look at fund managers' problem for... If we must. So um, it, and this interesting observation about fund managers, and I am a fund manager, so clearly I'm you know, guilty of all kinds of hypocrisy now. The problem with the asset management business is that 90-plus percent of asset managers are not asset managers. In fact, they're asset gatherers. So they're parts of enormous industrial machines pretty much whose sole purpose is to create fees, not to deliver the best returns for their clients. And that trend is exacerbated by the industry's obsession with scale. You now, everybody wants to make money. The conventional way of charging for fund management is through an ad valorem fee, a fee that derives from the, the quantum of assets that you manage, So the bigger you are, the more assets you have, the wealthier you get. And that's a problem because there's no shortage of statistical evidence to suggest that the bigger you are, the worse your performance gets. So there's a quite clear conflict there. Um, The bond market. So both bond and stock markets have one big problem I'd suggest, namely that we're just talking about fund management. Fund managers tend to be benchmark-driven the cult of indexation for some reason, I can only assume driven by consultants has, has has loomed large over the course of the last few decades and there is one gigantic problem with indexation it's inappropriate for private investors so an example I, I take against I'm a value investor so I'm clearly looking for, I'm trying to buy dollar bills for 40 cents and the way institutional managers work is they're predominantly benchmarked to some set of indices the the prevailing global equity index is the MSCI world index for example so MSCI is a big index provider if you're a manager tracking the MSCI equity index, world equity index 60% of that index is the US so assuming you're tracking that index for whatever reason best known only to the fund management community then you pretty much have to have 60% of your fund in the US whether you like it or not that is garbage
1: and finally, the financial media, the
2: financial which is media.
1: kind of this crossover with eco- economists here. Uh,
2: to an extent, yeah. So I, I identify three types of, of forces in the financial media. Firstly, there's the people who are simply trying to give you an easy narrative about why stuff happened. And that, that, that may or may not be accurate, but it, it's a story that people can choose to believe whether or not it's true. The second type of, the the real minorities, the people who actually know what the the hell they're talking about, and I like to think that you and I are in that um, category, answers on a postcard. And the third category, and I won't name names, Martin Wolf and um, Paul Krugman, are the policy wonks, who I just think should be given a very wide berth, because they're very, very dangerous.
1: They are, particularly when people believe them. Um, Right, how do we save the world, Tim?
2: Okay, um, good question. Not sure anybody has the answers, but I, I, I offer three, three possible investment uh, approaches or strategies to, to try and navigate through this particularly choppy uh, and turbulent water to come. The first is value investing. So value investing, particularly seen through the prism of the stock markets, is trying to buy quality companies cheaply. So QE has led all, all sorts of investors in a search for yield, but the trouble is that many investors are now overpaying for high-quality businesses, so that they've made those, they've bid up the prices to a, perhaps an artificially high degree. As a value investor, which is not necessarily remotely popular at the moment um, because everyone's into momentum and growth, nevertheless, the statistics for value investing, which some of which i highlight in the book, are really compelling over the long term. So basically, it's a defensive form of equity investing. It's a margin of safety uh, form of equity investing, to quote Benjamin Graham, who's the godfather of, of value investing. So I think value has a role to play. The second approach I, I think that has merit is something called trend following, which is a momentum strategy, so a pure price trading strategy, and that, that strategy has worked particularly well in prior periods of market dislocation and whenever there are strong trends. So unless you believe that human nature has somehow profoundly changed, which I don't, I don't believe that then there will always be trends in markets and there will always be trends that trend-following funds can exploit. So that's, that's something that, that can be borne in mind, either by buying funds that practice it or by pursuing that strategy oneself. And then the third option, the third answer, and again, I don't think there's any definitive one solution, but I think there's a variety. The third answer, particularly because I'm concerned about the ongoing devaluation of money, in other words, I, I would much prefer return to sound money, so drum roll, please, the third answer, I think, has to be in part gold.
1: So those are all solutions that an individual can take. Um, do you offer any solutions, you know, policy kind of solutions?
2: Um, good question. And I think probably uh, Jim Grant has, has the better line on this than I do. So when, when, whenever he's, he's asked the same question, he says, you know, if you were made Federal Reserve chairman, what would you do? And his first, his, his first response is, well, I'd immediately resign. So effectively, and this, this is going to sound hardcore and perhaps contentious, I, 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 am, I have a sufficiently strong belief it, that, that everybody in, in monetary policy terms is doing the wrong thing. That has led me to question whether the institution itself should exist. So I now strongly believe we would be better off without central banks altogether. So I think the, there is something in, in medicine called an iatrogenic illness, and an iatrogenic illness is an illness that's caused by the doctor. Killing the patient—that is where I'd say the central banks now are. They're not the—they're not the answer. They are the cause of the problem.
1: That's what happens with
2: lawyers. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment.
1: Very good, Tim. Well, um, why don't you—you know—tell us how we can get the book? And well, I'll tell you. It's the book is called "Investing Through the Looking Glass." It's by Tim Price. It was published. Oh, and still is published by Harriman House. Presumably, there is a Kindle version that we can. They buy. have an
2: e book. They have an e book version. An e book version is available through Amazon, so you can buy it through Amazon, through Harriman House, and all good bookshops.
1: Very good, and there is a physical version as well, which I am holding in my hand. Tim, finally, um, we are not even a week. It's not even a week since the election. Um, I had a big panic towards the end of last week about gold. I don't think it looks very good at the moment.
2: You're probably speaking from a technical perspective. I am. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't necessarily disagree. There are a lot of people out there that are far brighter than I am, and one of them is a gentleman. I won't name him here, but he's mentioned in the book, a Swiss fund manager that's a a close friend. And he says, if, for example, you're looking at gold and looking to sell, before you sell, assuming you are a holder, you should first ask yourself why why you own it. For me, and this has been the case since long before 2008 even, my reason for, honing, for owning gold, both personally and professionally, i.e. on behalf of clients, has been because the debt market problem has not been resolved. Unless and until the debt market problems have been resolved, I will be holding gold you know, in perpetuity, irrespective of short-term price action.
1: I want st- I'm holding gold because I want it to make me super rich.
2: I think the better way to look at gold is to stay rich rather than get rich investment.
1: Okay. <laughs> Tim, do you have a website? how do people sign up for your weekly newsletter? Um,
2: there's a blog, a free blog. The price, of, uh, the price of everything. and if people are interested in looking at, say, the fund, then that's available at PriceValuePartners.com. Excellent stuff, Tim Price. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes.